Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. Today we have a very special guest to talk to us about Bitcoin backed stablecoins, a very, very interesting topic indeed. Mr. David Seroy, he is the founder and CEO at Old North Capital Fund. David, how's it going, man? Good. Uh, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm super excited. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Bitcoin backed stablecoins, it's a topic that Nick and I have both wrote about extensively. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with your work. You reached out to me, and, and since then, I've been a bit of a fan myself. So, why don't you give the, the listeners just a bit of background on who you are uh, and what you do here in the Bitcoin space? Uh, sure. So, yeah, my name's David C. Riley. Um, I used to own a small private lending company outside of Bitcoin, um, but I sold that last year. Uh, and now I spend most of my days kind of uh, just infinite doom scrolling on Bitcoin Twitter and then uh, moonlighting as I'd say like a, an amateur Bitcoin researcher. Uh, and the topics that have kind of captured my imagination the most uh, you mentioned are like Bitcoin backed stable coins and Bitcoin backed credit, which are kind of two sides of the same coin. And then uh, validity rollups on Bitcoin, or what some people refer to as ZK rollups on Bitcoin, which I think are, uh, you know, a super underappreciated uh, potential scaling solution for Bitcoin. Phenomenal. I love the uh, the doom scrolling as a uh, amateur Bitcoin analyst. And I'll say you're, you're far from amateur. Your work is very, very good. And, uh, you know, ideally in this episode, we'll, we'll get to sit down and chat about it a little bit. So, so first things first, um, talk to us about... Uh, sort of what your what your whole thesis is regarding Bitcoin backed stablecoins, Bitcoin backed credit, and sort of the interrelation between the two. As I mentioned, it's something that Nick and I have spoken about in the past, and we've spoken about Lightning as uh, you know this this method by which Bitcoin can scale and it can offer these fixed income products. Um, but you come from it at a slightly different angle, so why don't you walk our viewers through that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll lay out kind of like a whole foundation and, and then some context, and you can kind of interject at any point. So for context, I think. Um, like a lot of us, when we first start learning about Bitcoin, and even now that we've kind of inundated ourselves with it, like everything that we see in the real world, it just reminds us of, of, of Bitcoin, right? It's like you go and talk to your normie friends and they're talking about like geopolitics or philosophy or whatever. They're scratching their nose and you're just like, yes, like Bitcoin fixes that. In the same way, when I go into conversations with Bitcoiners, everything that that I hear from them, I often just like, oh my gosh, like Bitcoin backed stablecoins fix this. And in both scenarios, obviously, Bitcoin doesn't necessarily fix everything. And definitely Bitcoin backed stablecoins do not fix everything. But the point I'm trying to illustrate is that I, I think that this is like a deeply misunderstood and underappreciated aspect of Bitcoin. And just like Bitcoin to normies, I think Bitcoin backed stablecoins to Bitcoiners are something that regardless of whether they end up researching it or appreciating it, it's going to start infiltrating Bitcoin culture. It's going to be start being something that gets integrated, whether people like it or not. So when I refer to, to Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, I'm specifically referring to, to over-collateralized Bitcoin-backed stablecoins. And these are fundamentally different from something like Terra Luna. Um, in the, in the stablecoin space, there's really kind of like three buckets, right? There's, there's centralized fiat-backed stablecoins like USDC, and Tether, um, which, you know, those are one-to-one -one backed in theory uh, by either a dollar in the bank account or something uh, like a risk-free asset like a U.S. Treasury. There's then these over-collateralized models, which are backed by at least one, uh, uh, very often more than one uh, dollar of, of Bitcoin value for every kind of stable coin in existence. And then there's these kind of Terra Luna, like uh, they, they, they try to peg the dollar through just pure economic incentives that, that really, in my opinion, have been doomed to fail from the start. Um, but regarding over-collateralized Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, uh, the implementation details can vary, but the fundamental idea is that you're taking an arbitrary amount of Bitcoin as collateral, and you're posting that or pledging that into some sort of smart contract. And because Bitcoin doesn't have uh, you know, full-feature smart contracts, this would, for the time being, be done on like federated or, or trusted sidechains. But you're 
posting some amount of, of, of Bitcoin collateral under the contract, and then you're borrowing against that. And as a byproduct of borrowing, you're issuing new stable coins into existence. The, the liabilities or the dollar claims that you're borrowing are themselves the new stable coins that you can transact with. And so an example would be, I could take $100 of Bitcoin collateral and I can post it into a smart contract and then I can choose a kind of what loan to value or leverage amount I want to borrow against. So if I put it put in 100, I can borrow at 70%. I'm just picking that number, um, uh, loan to value. And this is the protocol would mint and, and, and grant me 70 stable coin tokens. And so if the price of Bitcoin doubles, the value of my collateral is now $200, but the debt I owe is still only $70. So there is a kind of asset mismatch there, um, but that's very advantageous for all of us that potentially believe that that over time the dollar is going to devalue and our Bitcoin collateral is going to go up in purchasing power. On the flip side of that, uh, if the price moves against you, uh, then obviously you are at risk of liquidation. And so this is the kind of crux of this of this over collateralized stablecoin argument, where it's how do you make these protocols, um, you know, restrictive enough to where they they don't become fractional reserve. But loose enough to where they become collateral efficient, where you don't have to put up a million dollars of Bitcoin collateral to borrow like you know a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Fortunately, you know there's really been some some incredible research that's been done and experimentation on on Ethereum, and we're now seeing the advent of these projects that where you know you could borrow it up to say ninety percent loan to value, you can borrow at zero percent interest rate without KYC in a fully crypt cryptographic manner, and that is like an amazing product. And, and we've seen these things in the wild with hundreds of millions and, and maybe even in aggregate billions of dollars where they've gone through the past couple of years of these extreme drops of like 80% down, uh, like, you know, falls in price. And, and it, it's kind of proving that like these models are actually pretty resilient and quite useful. And there's a small contingent of us that say, hey, Bitcoin is the best collateral ever to be exist, ever to exist. Like, why don't we bring these protocols and these products to Bitcoiners? And we're starting to see subtle demands of that. So I'll pause for a second and kind of see if you have any initial questions, but definitely more that I want to dig into. For sure. You know, it is a very interesting concept because the system in which we live in now, of course, is a fractional reserve system. And now uh, uh, in, in the wake of 2008, of course, now reserve requirements, uh, if I'm not mistaken, are zero, right? And so it's mostly a fictional reserve system. Money can be lent uh, out of thin air, out of collateral that does not exist. And within you know the the Bitcoin ecosystem, the concept of over collateralization, it sort of corrects a lot of that uh, incentive disfigurement that can occur when uh, you know you're you're writing under collateralized loans, right? And it's more desirable for lenders in that regard as well, because uh, you know with a loan to value ratio below one, obviously lenders have the capability to to go ahead and, and liquidate the collateral for for a collateral that does fluctuate pretty wildly in price. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the incentives for for this. I, I touched on them very very briefly. Um, obviously, this is you know not this is uh, more uh, more desirable than something like a fractional reserve system, uh, which of course Bitcoin was was sort of created in part at the very least uh, to escape. But it's allowing credit creation, which is necessary uh, uh, for 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 global growth, at least accelerating global growth to occur in a Bitcoin environment. Talk to us about the incentives here for people who have Bitcoin and for people who have dollars. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So a, a couple things, um, you, you had mentioned this kind of idea of like, you know, the full reserve versus the fractional reserve. So most of, most of us are familiar with the, the, the Austrian, you know, school of economics, that's the framework that kind of underpins, uh, the, the, the economic side of, of, of Bitcoin. But within that, you know, it's not that all credit and all borrowing is bad. 
but it's specifically a type of credit that people call circulation credit, where you're, you're creating more claims than there are actual savings backing that. And so that is fractional reserve, saying if you only have $100 of gold in reserves, but you create $200 of claims against that. These stablecoin models are the exact opposite of that. You're always ensuring that there is more savings than there is kind of claims that have been minted into existence. So if you're an Austrian and, and you support full reserve, I mean, this is really the the instantiation of that, that, that philosophy. We're building it in a way where we're not dependent on banks or counterparties or people to say, hey, trust me, this is full reserve. It just programmatically cannot break from that, 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 that model. And so you asked about um, kind of incentives next. And, and this is like, you know, really the part that is, is most appealing to me. It, it, it's not that just that there is now this like really cool solution that, that people could use. It's, it's that I think the incentives are aligned in a way that, that people will use it, whether we like it or not. Right. And in my article, I kind of break it out as like three different parties. There's, there's the Bitcoin hodler, which is someone who they hold Bitcoin, but they also have to hold some amount of dollars because they, they pay expenses in real life. I think that's how where the majority of us fall into that camp. And then there's the, 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 the dollar holder, who says, hey, you know, Bitcoin, it's kind of cool, whatever, but like I live on a dollar standard, I need dollars. And then there's the kind of hardcore Bitcoin maximalist that says, hey, screw that, like I don't need dollars whatsoever. Well, the first incentive is, is that somebody who believes in Bitcoin long-term, you know, if they don't want to sell their Bitcoin because they're worried that they're going to miss out on the upside price appreciation, then it is economically rational for them to borrow against their Bitcoin in a very conservative manner. And so when they do that, they put collateral into a smart contract and it mints these Bitcoin backed stable coins. Well, the next party, the people that are really into dollars that just aren't yet ready for Bitcoin, they say, hey, like these dollars are, are, are really cool and really appealing to me. I can I can provably see that these are fully over collateralized and backed by Bitcoin. I know that that there's not going to be a run on Silicon Valley Bank and I won't be able to get my dollars. I know that these are censorship resistant dollars. They're all around superior types of dollars. And so as the demand for those dollars occurs, it prompts more collateral to be going into the smart contract uh, to, to mint more stable coins. And you create this kind of beautiful flywheel, this, this incentive mechanism where, where um, the demand for dollars pushes demand into collateral. And as the collateral demand goes up, the price goes up. And as the price goes up, it, it, it gives more room for people to create more dollars. And so these, these mechanisms kind of feed on themselves. And even if you're somebody that is just a hardcore Bitcoin and you say, screw the dollar completely, you're kind of sitting there and being like, well, you know, they are building everything like on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the collateral underpinning everything. And, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's pushing number go up. So, so I benefit from it. Like it's, it's an effective mechanism where, where everybody is kind of now aligned. And we've seen very similar mechanisms play out in the fiat world with the euro dollar system. And I think it's these same incentives that have kind of perpetuated this like 50 trillion, 60 trillion, maybe even like 100 trillion, like who knows how big the euro dollar system, this like insatiable desire for dollars has pushed into collateral, which has fed the debt monster. Um, and we can we can kind of like riff off that. But that's that, that's kind of the intro into the euro dollar system. 100 percent. You're, you're absolutely right, David. I loved I, I love, love, love that transition that you made and how you explained it and broke it down and how sort of, you know, this demand for collateral functions. It's what you're. It's what. It's why the dollar is so entrenched today. It's why, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar can't necessarily be, uh, uh, at least in my purview, uprooted the way that people think you can unplug a video game cartridge and plug a new one back in. Right. This this deeply embedded structural demand for collateral 
uh, feeds both the dollar and U.S. Treasuries as the global credit creation, uh, you know, scheme continues, right? And that same incentive structure can sort of be ported per se onto Bitcoin um, through uh, Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, through Bitcoin over collateralized Bitcoin uh, loan creation, and obviously over collateralized, um, uh, you know, j just uh, credit atop Bitcoin. So, so let's talk about it then. Uh, obviously, this this system, uh, the over collateralized lending, leads to ostensibly much higher quality credit. Whereas today, people think credit growth. They go, oh no, uh, you know, zero percent interest rates. Credit is created just because it can be. In an over collateralized regime, you're getting much higher quality credit. But uh, I, I suppose let's let's do that. Let's transition into into the euro dollar system. Um, how did the euro dollar system come about? Let's discuss a little bit of the history of the euro dollar system and for our viewers, what exactly the euro dollar system is. Sure. So uh, simply, the euro dollar system is uh, dollar denominated credit that exists offshore. So I think most Bitcoiners are very familiar with the narrative of. World War II happened, a bunch of people came together at Bretton Woods Conference, and you know the US was the dominant global world power, and they just said, hey, now the US dollar is going to be the global reserve currency. And that kind of laid out the, the onshore dollar system where you have you know Daddy Federal Reserve at the top, you have all of the, the commercial banks underneath it, and you know the Fed controls the amount of reserves in the system and sets interest rate, and that's like how the dollar system perpetuates. But in the 1950s, you know, kind of parallel to that system forming, uh, you know, people started depositing dollars offshore and kind of major financial hubs like, you know, uh, London and Zurich and and wherever. And um, there were there were probably like three primary reasons why why people did that. You know, one was was regulatory. There were entities with like huge dollar reserves like Russia who could never be banked by by onshore U.S. banks. So they had to have somewhere to get dollar banking. Uh, the second is probably like geographical. Right. It's just just inherently like the U.S. banks didn't have reach all these different places around the world. And then the third one is kind of economical, where where these offshore banks were able to pay higher um, interest rates on, on on dollar denomination. So there was these kind of these three incentives: regulatory, geographic, and um, and economic. And the system was like so deeply unregulated that if if you and I, Joe, are like offshore banks, I could say, uh, "Hey, Joe, will you like just loan me, you know, a hundred million dollars?" And you go, yeah, sure. And as long as like your balance sheet matches and it shows that like, hey, you created $100 million and my balance sheet also matches, then boom, we just created like a million or $100 million in, in liabilities. And so it's people like Jeff Snyder who describe this system as like this cashless and reserveless system. It's like, that is insane that like, like if people think fractional reserve is evil, like imagine like no, no reserve, like that's how this, this entire system perpetuated. But of course, you know, these entities kind of pushed the limits of, of this system. And eventually it came to a point where it was like, hey, Joe, like, I don't even know if you can actually honor that like $100 million commitment. That's that's like a little unnerving to me. And so then I started saying, well, well, well now I need to request that, that that it's backed by by collateral. And it was like, what was perceived as this safe amount of collateral? Well, things like mortgages, mortgage-backed securities. And so, so in order to create more of these offshore euro dollars, we now needed more collateral. So there was huge amounts of money that was buying up all these collateral, all of these mortgage-backed securities. It was like this birth of this gargantuan, you know, securities market that we know today. And so you can see how like the insatiable desire for these for these dollars, for these like you know unregulated dollars, is what perpetuated the demand for debt. And you know the way debt works is like the higher the price of debt goes because it's more in demand, the lower the interest rates go. Well, the lower the interest rates go, the more people are taking out mortgages, the more they're taking out this kind of malinvestment, the more of this kind of badness of, of, of like the Austrian economic cycle we, we see. And everybody knows the story like that eventually led to, you know, the 2008 
crisis where we were just over leveraged essentially on these on these mortgage backed securities because they were the the collateral underpinning the euro dollar system. Once that system broke, then everybody said, well, what is more pristine amounts of collateral that we can use than mortgage backed securities? Well, they started going to you know government debt. They started buying these, these these treasuries, and that's how we now have this system where where all of these kind of dollars in the world I, I shouldn't say all of them, but huge amounts of the dollars in the world are essentially minted as as loans against the pristine collateral, which is government debt. And that ability for the government to to uh, to essentially borrow more money and issue more treasuries has given them just huge leeway to put us into this entire debt trap. But all of it, again, stems from this insatiable desire for dollars, which then is uh, is pushed into demand for collateral. And because the collateral was debt, it allowed debt levels to get to astronomically high levels. And so what I am saying is that we can create better dollars using the same incentives, but instead of backing it with debt, which pushes interest rates lower and perpetuates this, this, this debt cycle, we're pushing that demand into Bitcoin, into the best saving device in history, which doesn't perpetuate these bubbles. So it's a very interesting dynamic going on there. Surely it is a very interesting dynamic. I have a few questions about uh, collateral quality. Uh, when it comes to U.S. Treasuries, obviously we know that they are the world's preferred, the most liquid market for collateral. As of right now, a, a couple key differences come to mind. One is that Bitcoin doesn't have the liquidity profile of something like U.S. Treasuries yet. Uh, as of right now, I think the Treasury market is somewhere around $21, 22000000000000 trillion uh, in uh, total market capitalization, where Bitcoin is obviously right around the $450 billion mark. So what what time frame do you feel whether it's multi-year multi-decade you'll start to see bitcoin um and obviously this factors in as well with the development of these instruments too will you start to see bitcoin more widely used as collateral for for credit creation uh and then also what are the disadvantages of having or advantages i suppose of bitcoin being a wholly inelastic form of collateral in terms of its supply right it has this decreasing supply schedule until 2140 where there won't be any more issued right under 21 million. That's the total amount of Bitcoin that will ever exist. So there's naturally scarce collateral, even at its its highest amount that it will ever be issued. Whereas the US Treasury market, of course, those can be issued ad infinitum, right? It is, it is a very elastic collateral. So talk about the advantages and disadvantages of having an elastic versus inelastic collateral. And then what sort of timeline do you, you think will start to see this, this system of, of Bitcoin, these Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, and then also uh, Bitcoin collateralized credit start to emerge? The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from Bitcoin, take, taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further. This is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the BitcoinLayer.com slash foundation to get yours today. Now, on with the video. Yeah, okay, so a couple questions there. One, uh, like the liquidity of the treasury market, of course. Like, like I don't expect Bitcoin overnight to, you know, become this like, you know, multi-hundred trillion dollar asset. Like, I do acknowledge the kind of like entrenchment of the current system. But I do think this is going to be a bottom-up phenomenon where 
right now, you know, in order to issue dollars in the euro dollar market, uh, you know, you essentially have to have access to the repo desk, right? You go and you buy treasuries, you post them in repo, and then they give you dollars. That's kind of like the engine of, 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 of the repo market. But now with these, these protocols, you know, anybody, you know, can take like as small as like a hundred dollars and they can say, well, I want, I want to borrow at 0% interest. I want to create these Bitcoin backed stable coins. And so I think in the same way that Bitcoin, you know, it didn't go from being you know, immediately put on uh, corporate treasuries, it was this kind of like bottom up revolution, you know, like we're really kind of democratizing the credit creation. Credit creation right now is only belonging to like the select few who have access to the repo desk. We're going to start seeing it just on an individual uh, kind of distributed level. Uh, I don't really know a, a time frame, but it just seems logical that that if we're about to go into this, you know, potentially like inflationary decade and we all expect Bitcoin to keep going up in price, it is it is a very economically rational behavior to use these protocols and not sell your your, your, your Bitcoin. And so uh, just anecdotally from kind of the demand that we're seeing for this product, I think we're going to start to see it grow. I don't really want to put a time frame on it and I don't really know how how soon it's going to take to uh to 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 you know take over the treasury market. For sure, absolutely. Um, the second you know I wouldn't either. At TBL we 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 definitely stay away from uh timelines and of, of course when and where they make sense. Um uh, but usually only on a multi-year multi-decade time frame. We try to stay away from arbitrary timelines. So 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 good answer there to that part. But I think the the notion of this bottom up uh, a bottom-up system whereby there isn't a specific collateral requirement. You don't have to be a specific type of institution to participate in the repo market. You can participate with as little, uh, you know, a, a very minute amount of Bitcoin and amount of Bitcoin that anybody would have in any given wallet on their on their mobile device. That's um that's a really remarkable idea to me for sure. Totally. And, and again, remember what I said, where it's like the whole thing that perpetuated the euro dollar were those three incentives. It's like, it's like the geographic reach, like the economic incentives and, and, and the, re the regulatory, like, you know, I'm not gonna make a judgment on like, you know, the regulatory and SEC or not, but like, you know, like these protocols can to some extent, like operate outside of that. And so they are very euro dollar in that sense. And then economically, you know, the 0% ability to borrow against these obviously that's like the, the best economic incentive you can get and then geographic just like you said it's like bitcoin is this like global asset and anyone with just you know a, a cell phone uh you know can, can start using these it uh you know they don't need a semblance of like identity or credit to start using these it's very 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 powerful but getting back to your other question that you mentioned it's like the advantages and disadvantages of using bitcoin as collateral uh the i'd say the primary disadvantage uh for the time being is that it's very volatile right and so there is risk that people will borrow against their Bitcoin and then big price drops happen and they get liquidated. I would say that's uh, an actual feature, not a bug. You want systems that if people are over leveraged, you want the leverage to essentially be, be, be um, you know, cleansed and purged out of the system. But I do expect over time, um, you know, that, 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 that system will kind of start to self-regulate. And, and we've already seen that in some of the protocols where people are not just APing in at the highest possible leverage ratios they possibly can. Like they're, they're, they're being more, more conservative because they don't want to lose their Bitcoin. They don't want to be liquidated. I think the more important thing is, is does these mechanisms work to where, um, you know, if an extreme price drop went like, will the stable coin, which is the second product, like, will, will, will that maintain its peg? And, and the answer is yes. So I'd, I'd say that's more, more important than that. The, um, the other thing that you mentioned about like elasticity is, is interesting, right? Cause it's like in the, uh, in, in the Euro dollar system, uh, you know, the way that they created more dollars, this is like this, this elastic demand where there's, there's, there's desire to create more dollars. Like how do you bypass this fixed supply to create more elasticity? And the way they did that is one that they, they drove huge demand and 
into the collateral, which increased the price of it, which allowed you to kind of borrow more and issue more of these, these dollars, or they, um, they essentially rehypothecated the collateral. So if I had, you know, a hundred million dollars of treasuries and I said, Joe, you know, will you loan me money against that? You know, I could, I could take that same collateral and I could go up to, you know, Alice and Bob and Carol, and I can essentially borrow against that same collateral. And so I can create essentially more claims against that collateral than the actual value of it. And so it's very similar to that kind of circulation or fractional reserve type concept, except rehypothecation is, you know, fractional reserve collateral. When you have these, these Bitcoin backed stable coins in these protocols, they can be programmatically made to where the collateral cannot be rehypothecated. It's, it, it's cryptographically prevented from being able to do that. And the system starts liquidating itself before it ever goes fractional reserve. And so the point I'm making with all of this is all of these financial tricks that were used to kind of create more dollars or more claims or more leverage, you can restrict in these protocols and you can cryptographically audit to see you know, how many claims versus how many assets are, are, are there. And the only outlet to be able to create more dollars is for a number to go up. You know, like if, if we're at this, this, this limitation, you know, I can't be the collateral intermediary and be like, hey, I'm going to take Joe's collateral and I'm going to rehypothecate the crap out of it for my own benefit. If the world demands more Bitcoin backed dollars, well, then Bitcoin price has to go up. And so the way I interpret this is even though Bitcoin itself can't be made elastic, it's that, that, that demand, which in the traditional world would result in more elasticity, is instead channeled into a higher nominal Bitcoin price, which in turn allows more of this over collateralized credit to be created. So there is no restriction on the amount of credit you can create because there's no cap on, the, 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 on how high the price of Bitcoin can go. And this is how we get into those like, you know, million, two million, five million, ten million, like insane, you know, Bitcoin prices is by channeling that demand for dollars into Bitcoin collateral. So this is quite remarkable because it's a system where you can verifiably audit and ensure that collateral isn't rehypothecated. And because of that, the amount of credit will always be moving in line with the actual uh, market capitalization of the underlying collateral itself, right? And it goes both ways, right? If the value of collateral drops dramatically, there isn't going to be all of this outstanding credit that is yet to be, uh, yet to be liquidated, right? Um, there isn't going to be this uh, this Bitcoin that was borrowed twelve di borrowed against twelve different places at a seventy percent uh, loan to value ratio, and now all of a sudden Bitcoin's price is dropped fifty, sixty, seventy percent, uh, and uh, all of a sudden it gets liquidated in five different places at once, and then those claims get vaporized. Uh, this is uh, this is an extremely remarkable concept. Talk to me about what are the applications that are getting built right now that are enabling this to occur. Uh, I've written about, I've, I've, I've talked about um, uh, not necessarily directly Bitcoin backed credit. So uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What is happening in this space right now? What are the applications that are getting built that can bring this to fruition? Yeah, so there's, there's two primary ones. Uh, you know, one of the projects I've, I've researched most closely is, is Sovereign, which um, is, is a protocol built on RSK or Rootstock, which is a Bitcoin sidechain. And that team, uh, Sovereign has a, has built a protocol called uh, called Zero, and this allows you to, as we described, put Bitcoin as collateral into a smart contract, and then you can borrow at zero percent interest. There is a small origination fee, usually ranging from like fifty bips to you know I think it goes up to like you know five percent, but all things considered, by far the most kind of competitive way to to borrow against your Bitcoin. And then again, as a byproduct of that, you receive these stable coins. So you can either uh, you can either hold the stable coins as a liability, meaning something that you owe, which is effectively a short on the dollar, 
or you don't have to pledge any Bitcoin. You can just hold some of your dollar value as these Bitcoin backed dollars, in which case you're holding those 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 dollars as, as assets and you're subject to inflation. Another protocol, which I don't think is released yet, but that it has been in the works is called Fuji Money, which is on the liquid side chain. Um, so both of these are kind of, uh, you know, I'd say Bitcoin compatible products. Uh, yes, they are built on side chains, which for right now are federations, meaning there is a certain level of trust that you're taking on. But I think directionally, um, they're they're pretty powerful products. Absolutely fascinating. And I wanna I wanna shift gears into because I know that some of these products are are in their infancy, but the the evolution of them is uh, very very fast, very rapid. In, in just a few months, in just a few years, some of these protocols go from nascent, not used, to widely used in parts of the ecosystem. So I have no doubt that over the coming years, we're going to start to see some of these things balloon in popularity. Particularly, I think the the setup for this next market cycle for Bitcoin is extreme, a very exciting prospect to me because we're obviously entering the downturn phase of this business cycle, of this credit cycle, um, where we're experiencing this sort of uh, economy-wide deleveraging. There's going to be this growth downturn. Um, and the the upturn of that cycle, right? Whether it's twelve to eighteen months from now, that's going to sort of align with Bitcoin's next supply schedule having where it gets cut in half. And so I think over the next twelve to eighteen to twenty four months, when all these things occur, the economic cycle is moving back into expansion. At the same time, the Bitcoin supply schedule gets cut in half. I think that the the use and the development of these tools is also going to skyrocket as Bitcoin's price uh, appreciates many many fold. Uh, within that vein that that these things are going to become ever more popular, I want to make our viewers aware of some of the risks associated uh, with some of these uh, Bitcoin backed stable coins with these smart contracts. Walk us through some of the risks that are present as of right now and some of the, some uh, potential risks that could make themselves known. Yeah, sure. So um, there's actually uh, like one of uh, Lynn Alden's articles talking about DeFi. She, she mentioned some of these risks and I, and I, post those in uh, my, my stablecoin article on, on Bitcoin Magazine. And I think the, the first and most obvious risk is just, it, it's kind of like working as intended, uh, but you just, you know, there's a, a, a big price drop in Bitcoin and some of your uh, collateral gets liquidated uh, because of the price drop. So that's number one, people need to be aware of that. Uh, the second risk is, yeah, these things are in their infancy and they are, you know, coded as smart contracts, which could have bugs. So it, it could be a a benevolent uh, risk where somebody just outsmarted the devs and they were able to hack the, the the contracts. I think that risk is 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 becoming smaller as we're kind of able to see some of these protocols operate for the past couple of years in Ethereum world and a lot of the stuff on Bitcoin is it's kind of forking some of those protocols. So they are battle tested kind of on on these kind of like altcoin environments and then brought over. But definitely smart contract risk is it is another one. Um, also, because you're dealing with uh, a stable coin, you know, there is an Oracle and this is probably like the number one risk. And in, in my opinion, um, is, is that if that Oracle can somehow be gamed, then it could, uh, you know, essentially break the protocol. And obviously there are, these are like well-known issues. There, there's ways to kind of like build defenses for the Oracle and try to make them like quasi decentralized and have, you know, you have economic incentives that, that prevent people from submitting bad Oracle prices and you can checkpoint them against things like AMMs. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's like a, a risk that would prevent me personally from using the protocol, but definitely one to be aware of. Um, and then the final risk, uh, um, and this is a, like a, a, a common retort in Ethereum world is like when somebody is building a, a smart contract, like 
like the developers technically have the keys, just like you have the key to, or the, 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 yeah, the private key to be able to send your Bitcoin. There's a key to be able to, to edit and, and change those, those smart contracts. And so people constantly say like, you know, DeFi is not decentralized because somebody, you know, controls that key, or it's like a small group of like unknown people that own the multi-sig that could just like rug pull you. Um, you can get to a point where you can burn the upgradability of, of these contracts so that nobody owns the key and that they truly are decentralized. That is kind of the gold standard. Uh, and so that's something to kind of be on the lookout for is like, have these protocols actually burn the upgradability? If they haven't, what is the rationale why? The final one I'll mention is um, that I kind of alluded to earlier is these protocols for the bit for Bitcoin are built on these side chains. So you have a separate independent blockchain from Bitcoin and you have to peg or bridge your Bitcoin over into that that world. And as soon as you do that, it is essentially a Bitcoin IOU. You are trusting some sort of intermediary, usually uh, kind of like a like a multi-sig to issue you that Bitcoin IOU. At this point, some of the, the, the larger, more established side chains like Liquid and like Rootstock have, have like pretty well established security practices. And, um, you know, I think most people consider them reasonably safe. But of course, like that is not compatible with the ultimate Bitcoin ethos of like there is nothing more secure than holding on layer one in deep cold storage. But if you're willing to kind of take these risks to explore these products, you know, I think there are reasonable risks to start exploring. And there's kind of paths to make them fully decentralized in the future. Fantastic. Talk to us about uh, some of the the trade-offs uh, and differences between other Bitcoin scaling solutions. Here at uh, TBL, we, we talk about Lightning very, very frequently. Obviously, Lightning is very far along, I, I feel, in its development. Of course, there are still some drawbacks there, but it seems to be the most widely used uh, scaling solution to Bitcoin. Talk to us about some of the existing scaling solutions and, and what their limitations are relative um, to, to what you're uh, uh, advocating for, per se. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for for a while. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm probably gonna get like hate from a lot of people. Um, like, I love lightning, I do. But I think it has limitations that a lot of people aren't quite aware of, you know, something like like channel jamming attacks, I think, like, the most established lightning devs have said like this, this may be an insurmountable issue that like, we can never totally avoid. Also, the inherent nature of lightning network, because it's all these kind of disparate channels. And so you it's it's, it's much more difficult to program and build like multi party applications where multiple people want to like pool into uh, you know, like, like, like a single pool and create applications like decentralized Bitcoin backed stable coins off that, or, you know, people are talking about like Taro. Well, you know, Taro doesn't really have like fully expressive scripting capabilities. So, so you can't really build, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of like these decentralized Bitcoin backed stable coins and Bitcoin backed borrowing, kind of like what I'm talking about. It, it all comes with these trade-offs and, and these limitations. And so having something like, like side chains as just an additional scaling solution is very, very powerful. Um, but the problem is, is these side chains like are, are trusted and I have to give context and go way back. So back in like 2014, some of the Bitcoin OGs, they, um, they put out this white paper, uh, you know, side chains, and this was, you know, Adam back. And I think Andrew Polstra and a lot of people from Blockstream, and they said, Hey, you know, here's going to be our scaling solution. Like, we're going to have Bitcoin is the main chain, minimal to no changes to that. And then we're gonna have all these separate, like side chains that kind of specialize in certain things where maybe you can go into this one and you can get like fully private encrypted transactions. Maybe you go into this one. And if you're a big blocker, you can do that. Like maybe you can go over here and like go, go, go to DeFi. And it was like this amazing vision where it was like scale and full features. Like people were like in love with this vision, but the paper said like, Oh, but wait, like we didn't solve this, 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 this one thing, which is like the cryptographic uh, two-way peg. Meaning that if you bridge your Bitcoin from Bitcoin L1 into these other ecosystems, like I mentioned earlier, you're essentially trusting this, this federation. You, they're issuing you some sort of IOU 
on that. And so there, there's not this like trustless guarantee that you can bridge back. Like you essentially have to ask someone's permission for that. And that is like a little sketch. The blockstream said, hey, don't worry, like, like we'll solve that. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, the problem is, is that blockstream was never really able to, to solve that, that, that trustless two-way peg. Um, and that's kind of why we put all of our eggs in one basket, in my opinion, with, with Lightning. But Lightning's now maybe doesn't have like the full set of features that we want. Um, another thing I forgot to mention about Lightning is like the, the, the node and channel management is like, it lends itself to being like highly custodial. There's a lot of other issues, even just like opening up channels and the capacity on layer one. But going back to these, these, these side chains, if we fast forward to several years, there's been deep levels of research, really cool research that's been going on in Ethereum world and their L2 scaling. And they've selected these solutions called ZK rollups. And there have been these like profound breakthroughs with, with you know, these cryptographic proofs called ZKPs, which allow these kind of trustless scaling solutions. And so that problem that I described with these side chains, where you bridge into these L2s, you are trusting someone, a, a ZK rollup can eliminate that. You can have these trustless side chains and like, that is so profound. Now we can have this world where we can make minimal to no changes to Bitcoin, but we can bridge into these other L2s and you can have fully feature, fully expressive smart contracts that don't require major changes to, to, to the, the, the layer one blockchain. Like you don't have to increase the block size. You don't have to add Turing completeness, expressive smart contracts to Bitcoin. You make a minimally invasive change uh, for something called like a, like a ZKP verifier and then you can open up this this whole world and this whole landscape. Um, and I think that's something that years ago, people have always said, like, you know, we will take good ideas from the Ethereum space or from the altcoin space. And like, we will look to bring the good ideas onto Bitcoin. And I think people have like lost sight of that. And I think there is a disconnect between the average Bitcoiners, and I'm making broad generalizations here, their understanding of the kind of philosophical and monetary aspects of money versus the, the technical and deep research. And I think we've lost some of that. And I think it's very unfortunate. And I'm not advocating for changes to Bitcoin, but I am saying, hey, there's some pretty damn promising solutions out there and we should at least research them. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there, there is a level that I do admire within the Bitcoin community of um, vitriol towards the notion of extreme change. But I also do think that it's very important to, at the very least, um, have a discussion, have a discussion around these things. And you know the way that Bitcoin itself changes, and the way that um, second layer and third layer and, and side chains um, they actually go ahead and develop. I'm, uh, uh, I admire the the slow pace at which these things occur, and so I think this is a, an excellent part of the discussion that can and uh, actively is being folded into it because obviously credit is what makes the world go around, and dollars as of right now are what makes the world go around too. I think a lot of people. They misconstrued Bitcoin and the dollar as being rivals, enemies, what have you. Uh, I think that the real difference is Bitcoin uh, versus fiat currency, Bitcoin versus central banks that have the ability to manipulate interest rates and, and uh, flood the system with money created out of thin air. The dollar is going to be around. The dollar is going to be around for several decades at the very least, right? It's something we, we talk about at the Bitcoin layer here. And it's something Bitcoiners themselves need to wrap their heads around, I feel. Um, I think a nice way to, to sort of tie this up with a bow is uh, maybe you can speak to that reality a little bit. The way that you close out your Bitcoin Magazine article is discussing that, look, um, you know, we're, we're going to be in this period of dollar usage for quite some time. Bitcoin may as well develop instruments that can stand to benefit from that structural demand for dollars. What do the next several years look like? Um, what is this long and treacherous road that we see ahead of us 
uh, in terms of the development of, of Bitcoin backed stablecoins and Bitcoin credit? Yeah, so you, you brought up an interesting point there. And I want to make this like clear from my perspective. And please correct me if you think I'm wrong. Like stable coins in the dollar does not perpetuate the fiat system. What perpetuates the fiat system is the demand for treasuries as collateral, right? Like all of this outsized demand for euro dollars manifests itself, as I mentioned earlier, into lower interest rates, which allows the US government to continually keep fueling itself with debt. Yeah. If you want to and, borrow and lend uh, at a global scale, you need to have US treasuries. So that is that is correct in some in some aspect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 having Bitcoin backed stable coins essentially removes that. You know, it's 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 twofold. It's like like if we acknowledge that that stable coins are necessary and we opt for something like Tether, well like every dollar of savings that that that, that goes into Tether perpetuates that kind of that, that that fiat system by giving more debt. But if we start backing those by Bitcoin, like we are indirectly kind of defunding the government, like we are um, essentially forcing them to, to to borrow more at higher interest rates. And I, I think that's ultimately what all Bitcoiners want. And again, we're channeling all of that value into Bitcoin. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I, I, I kind of lost track of your, your, your question, but uh, I think it was kind of like, uh, you know, it's like wrap up. It's like, what does this world look like? Well, I think, I think whether Bitcoin is like it or not, like there's a small contingent of us that are going to kind of keep uh, building these products. And I think that you're going to see, uh, hopefully, this kind of Cambrian explosion of uh, of what Nick talks about in, in his book Layered Money, where there are going to be all of these different instantiations of kind of like you know Bitcoin backed stable coins, uh, where Bitcoin is like the core collateral at the top of the pyramid, and you have these different different layers. And we're going to see that on side chains. And I hope one day, you know, Bitcoiners start kind of questioning and saying like, what's the deal with the, these, these ZK rollups? And then hopefully we'll get to a point where we can have, you know, these, these trustless uh, Bitcoin backed stable coins. On top of that, um, you know, once you have that sort of functionality, like you can add features like, like fully encrypted, you know, end to end shielded transactions. And like there, there is a, in my opinion, a not so distant future where we could have like fully trustless using ZK rollups and fully encrypted um uh bitcoin backed stablecoin transactions flowing on like a layer two uh like that is just like an amazing vision and i hope that we see it and how more bitcoiners open up to it likewise i hope that we see a future where bitcoin can soak up the global demand for the assets and the financial instruments that are demanded and that are used every day for our existing and of course future financial plumbing and credit as much as people hate that word in the bitcoin community David, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, an enlightening discussion, I hope, for our listeners. And I certainly know it was enlightening for myself. It has added to my framework quite tremendously. And this is certainly not the last that myself or the community will be seeing of you. Before we sign off here, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter, uh, David underscore C. Roy. Uh, you know, hopefully it's not too much shit posting content. And hopefully you guys get value from it. And, you know, definitely like DMs are open. I, I love talking about this stuff. So um, if anybody wants to send me something, Please do. Absolutely. I'd highly suggest, highly suggest viewers and listeners go read some of David's additional auxiliary work on Bitcoin, on ZK rollups, Bitcoin backed stablecoins, and the like. Of course, shoot him a follow on Twitter. If you liked and enjoyed this video, make sure you subscribe, uh, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube. And that is all for today. David, thanks again for coming on. Talk soon.
The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin Hardware Wallet, the Bitcoin Hardware Wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from Bitcoin, take, taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further. This is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the BitcoinLayer.com slash foundation to get yours today. Now, on with the video.